me. Uh, I'm going to talk today about the history of the papacy and the first millennium or so of the church. In Matthew 16, which was the gospel yesterday, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him in response, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. By as early as the third century, people are interpreting this passage as referring to the Bishop of Rome, who is understood to be the successor of Peter, and are using it to justify the extraordinary powers that the Pope has, the power to speak authoritatively on matters of, on matters of doctrine, the ability to be in charge of other bishops, to make rules for the life of the church and her liturgy. Uh, as we're going to talk about the development of the papacy today, we'll see that there is a lot of development that takes place over these 1,000 years. The powers that the Bishop of Rome has get more specific uh, in their in what exactly they are, but there's also continuity through all of this. Um, from the earliest days of Christianity, Rome is an important part of the church. Catholics consider Peter to be the first pope. Other Christian traditions would dispute this, and many historians would say it's anachronistic, but I think that depends on what we mean when we say that Peter was the first pope. Obviously, Peter didn't sit on a throne or walk around in fine clothing. He didn't carry around a crozier or wear a mitre, but the pope is fundamentally the bishop of Rome. And a bishop is fundamentally the shepherd and leader of a church community. And there are good historical reasons for saying the Apostle Peter did go to Rome and that he was martyred there, as is depicted on the picture on the right. Um, so while our historical information about what Peter did in Rome is limited, it's hard to believe that if one of the most important apostles was in Rome, he wouldn't have been a leader in the church. So I think we are on strong grounds to say that Peter was an important leader in the Roman community, and in that sense, is the first pope. After Peter, for a while, biographical information on his successors on other bishops of Rome is hard to come by. If we look at the late first century, early second century, we don't have a lot of information about people who were pope or bishop of Rome, aside from lists of their names. What we can find from this period are certain praises given to the church in Rome by other places. So for example, a bishop from Corinth, St. Dionysius, praises Rome for having a long tradition of providing material support to poorer churches. Uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, another martyr in the early church, while on his way to Rome, wrote the church in Rome an epistle in which he praised them as being preeminent in love. And we do have one piece of writing from a pope in this period, Clement, the fourth pope who reigned in the final decade of the first century. So we don't have a lot of evidence from this period, but what we do have suggests that the church in Rome is a place of religious and spiritual significance. Not necessarily primacy, the kind of things that are said about Rome could be said about important churches in a lot of cities, like Jerusalem or Antioch as well, but the Roman church, based on the earliest evidence we have, is clearly a place of some importance. 
from the late second century onwards, the amount of evidence that we have increases dramatically, often because of records of conflicts that the Bishop of Rome gets in with other bishops. So for example, Pope Victor, who was Bishop of Rome from 189 to 198 and was the first of three African popes that we've had up to this point, is known through his involvement in what's called the Cornodesmen controversy, that is through controversies he had with bishops in modern day Turkey over when to celebrate the Feast of Easter. We know things about Popes Cornelius and Stephen who reigned in the 250s because of controversies they get into with North African bishops over how to handle the readmission of people into the church who had denied the faith during imperial persecutions. Now, I don't really have time to go into the details of these controversies, but what they do show us is that the Bishop of Rome clearly thought that he had the, the authority, it was within his purview, to intervene in the affairs of other churches. And people in other cities sometimes liked that. If the Pope agreed with you, that was a nice feather in your cap to have in an argument. That was something that was good for your side. But when they disagreed with him, they also felt perfectly comfortable just telling him to take a hike. They did not feel that his word settled the matter by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and if we were to ask why were people from other cities interested in what the Bishop of Rome said, the writings of St. Irenaeus, uh, a second century bishop in Lyon, modern day France, who Pope Francis has recently declared a doctor of the church, uh, provide a bit of an answer. Irenaeus writes that all the churches should agree with Rome because Rome has preeminent authority as a place that preserves the traditions passed on from the apostles. Um, now, what, what exactly is meant by that is debated by scholars. The Latin here is notoriously difficult to translate, but the general idea is that Irenaeus is suggesting other churches should try and model themselves after the Roman church because the tradition passed on from the apostles has been preserved in the Roman church in a special way. In the fourth, oh, and I should also note as a brief closing to this section that the controversies I mentioned with uh, Pope Victor, Pope Cornelius, Pope Stephen, none of them were successful in convincing other bishops to adopt the positions that they took. They were not immediately able to achieve their agendas. But in later years, the whole church would kind of come to think that they had been on the right side of those issues. And that came to be important in building a reputation that Rome was this place that preserved apostolic traditions and was important in preserving the role of orthodoxy and right belief. In the fourth century, we get even more evidence about the Bishop of Rome and what he and others thought about him. Um, one of these pieces of evidence comes from the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was an ecumenical council, a gathering of bishops from the whole church to come together and talk about important issues facing the church. Um, and while the specific issue of play at Nicaea was debates about the divinity of Christ, they talked about a lot of things there. And one of the things that they say is that Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch are the principal sees of Christianity. They're sort of like the archdiocese, if you will, of the ancient world, the, the most important areas, one who have, ones who have some authority over other surrounding areas. A later council in the Western Church, the Council of Sardica, 
gives any Western bishop who was deposed the ability to appeal that decision to Rome, indicating Rome has final say in these matters. They were sort of like the Supreme Court in matters of church discipline. And certainly by the time, <clears throat> excuse me, of Pope Damasus pictured up there on the top, the Bishop of Rome saw himself as worthy of a certain kind of preeminence. Uh, Damasus, who was Pope from 366 to 384, referred to his fellow bishops not as brothers, which was customary, but as sons, and insisted on the apostolic origin of papal claims to authority based on that passage from Matthew that I read at the beginning of this talk. Other bishops weren't always crazy about that. Um, so Rome is not merely claiming to be important at this point, but it is preeminent, it is the most important. And a number of factors are combining to increase the prestige of the Bishop of Rome at this time and allow him to make these sorts of claims. As the city of Rome's fortunes were declining politically at this time, the imperial capital had moved to Constantinople in the east, sometimes Rome wasn't even the most powerful city politically in the region, the Bishop of Rome was increasingly becoming the most important and powerful person in a city that could not but retain some symbolic importance from its past. The absence of the emperor also gave the pope a much freer hand to operate that his counterparts in Constantinople, where the emperor was right next door, did not usually have. Rome is also continuing to gain a reputation as a defender of orthodoxy, largely based on the fact that Pope Julius, pictured on the bottom there, had defended St. Athanasius during those controversies at Nicaea over the divinity of the sun. By the end of the fourth century, Rome is increasingly claiming not just importance, but primacy, and bishops of Rome claimed both doctrinal and political authority for their office. Now, sometimes those claims could be put into action, Sometimes they couldn't. A good example of a pope who was able to exercise these sorts of authorities is Leo the Great, pope from 440 to 461. Leo is best known for helping to resolve a controversy over how to understand the relationship between the humanity and divinity of Christ held in another ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Though Leo did not himself attend the council, he sent legates with a letter outlining his position, which is now commonly called Leo's Tome. When the bishops heard it read, they proclaimed, Peter has spoken through Leo, and the position that that council ended up taking was largely in line with Leo's recommendations, which was a huge win for the papacy, a major sign that they were a powerful player in being able to help resolve controversies and establish the unity of the church. It is also during Leo's reign that we really begin to see the Bishop of Rome acting not just as a spiritual leader, but also as the primary defender of the city of Rome. Leo is part of a party that successfully makes a peace treaty with Attila the Hun, convincing him not to invade Rome. He would later have a more mixed record dealing with the Vandals, achieving uh, or preventing the Vandals from full-on destroying the city of Rome, although they did pillage the city for 14 days. So, more of a mixed record on that one. Another prominent bishop of Rome in this period is Pope Gregory the Great, Pope from 590 to 604, whose feast day is on my birthday, so we have a special affinity, he and I. Um, <laughs> He's often seen as a transitional figure from the first couple centuries of the church, which we often call the early church, to the Middle Ages. 
It is with Gregory that we really see come into full bloom the fact that the Bishop of Rome is now a political temporal leader with powers over Rome and its surrounding areas. Gregory makes provisions for refugees fleeing to Rome from Lombard invasions. He sets up social welfare programs for the people of Rome, cementing a pre-existing tradition that endures to this day that the Pope has a special responsibility in taking care of the poor in Rome. He establishes notaries and other civil offices. He employs an army and successfully signs a treaty with the Lombards to forestall their invasion of Italy. Gregory also does two things that are enormously important in the religious development of Europe in the Middle Ages. Before he was pope, Gregory was a monk. He probably would have preferred to stay a monk. He's one of those popes that seemed never crazy about having to be in that position. And he was a great admirer of Saint Benedict of Nursia, the creator of Benedictine monasticism. Gregory's promotion of Benedict's rule of life ensured that it was the form of monasticism practiced in Europe, and so he helps foster one of the most important and enduring institutions in the West. Obviously, we still have Benedictine monasteries today. I think we have some here in Georgia around the area. Um, Gregory is also responsible for sending missionaries to the British Isles, which at this point are still pagan. This is especially significant because in the coming centuries, English Christians would be enormously influential in the church in Europe. They played a huge role in converting northern European peoples in places like modern-day Germany that at that point were still pagan, and they were very influential in the courts of Frankish rulers like Charlemagne, and so in the revival of learning that occurred under his rule. And because Christianity was brought to Britain by missionaries from Rome, by missionaries sent from the Pope, the Christianity they brought with them and the Christianity practiced in Britain was one in which, well, was a Roman one, one where the Pope is an important figure and Roman practices, language, and liturgy are authoritative. And this marks a good point to move into the Middle Ages. Uh, yeah, we can stay on that for a minute. Um, the beginning of the Middle Ages is usually placed sometime around the 6th or 7th century. It kind of depends on what sort of history you're looking at. And there are two main changes I'll talk about that occur during the papacy in this period. First, the nature of the Pope's political power and the rulers he interacts with changes. Second, especially in the late Middle Ages, the Pope's authority over other bishops and in regulating the life of the church outside Rome dramatically increases. Starting with the Pope's temporal powers, one of the big shifts we see in this period is a shift in what secular ruler the Pope has the most interaction with. Prior to the 8th century, the Pope's most important relationship with a political leader was his relationship to the Roman Emperor. But in the 5th century, the western portion of the Roman Empire falls into a state of collapse and becomes divided among many smaller kingdoms. So the the red represents what we generally call the Western Roman Empire. And from the fifth century onward, all of those areas are increasingly taken over by different non-Roman peoples and so are no longer under a unified political leader. The empire continues in the east and in fact will continue in some form up until the 15th century when the Ottoman Turks conquer it. Um, but the emperor increasingly has very little ability to exert any kind of power in the west. So while that does mean that the Pope doesn't have to worry about the emperor meddling in his affairs, what he does have to worry about is that there is no longer anyone to protect him from the armies that keep trying to invade Rome. And so popes start looking for a new guardian. The first people to take this role 
are the Frankish rulers, it's modern day France, of the Carolingian dynasty, most notably the unfortunately named Pippin the Short, his son Charlemagne, and Charlemagne's son Louis the Pious. In 751, Pippin the Short and the Bishop of Rome at that time, Pope Zachary, strike a deal. In exchange for Zachary giving his blessing to Pippin's efforts to overturn the decrepit Merovingian dynasty and become king himself, Pippin would defend Rome from the Lombard invaders. Uh, so Zachary gives his blessing and Pippin is successful in overthrowing the king. And Zachary's successor, Stephen II, is able to ensure Pippin makes good on his promise. And we have uh, Pippin being anointed by a representative of the Pope, St. Boniface, in a picture on the left. Um, through the intervention of Stephen II, the Franks do conquer the Lombards and grant the popes much of their land. This gift would be called the donation of Pippin and effectively creates the Papal States, land that would remain under the control of the Pope until the unification of Italy in the 19th century. So the Pope now had a much larger amount of land under his control. Perhaps the most significant moment in this new relationship comes on Christmas Day in the year 800, when Pope Leo II anoints Charlemagne as the new Holy Roman Emperor. Something that the Holy Roman Emperor in the East wasn't really crazy about, but there wasn't a lot he could do about it. So this was the state of the church for a little while. Um, and where, in addition to the protection they received from Frankish rulers, popes during this time were also able to exercise a lot more influence in the affairs of the Frankish church. Frankish rulers, influenced by English advisors like St. Boniface, felt that the church in France was in need of reform. And in trying to reform their church, they turned to Rome as model and its bishop as resource. Canon law, that is church law, the laws that govern the church and its internal affairs, had been a mess in France for quite some time. In seeking how to simplify and organize them, Charlemagne turns to Pope Hadrian I for guidance, and the Pope sent him a collection of Roman canon law on which Charlemagne based his reforms. So in addition to the increased political power popes were now enjoying, in the 8th and 9th century, they also increasingly had the ability to influence things in the church outside of Rome. And a good example of this is Pope Nicholas the Great. Incidentally, one of four popes we give the title the Great to, Leo the Great, Gregory the Great, this guy, and most recently, John Paul the Great. Um, Lothar, in the, in the 860s, Lothar, the king of Lorraine, a European kingdom in Central Europe, sought to get his marriage annulled because his wife, Tutberga, had failed to produce him an heir. He got a synod of local bishops to legitimize this, but Tutberga appealed the decision to Nicholas. When archbishops from Cologne and Trier brought Nicholas the synodal decisions that approved the annulment, Nicholas had them all deposed and excommunicated for abetting the adultery of the king. The emperor sent troops to Rome trying to force Nicholas to approve of the marriage, but he did not budge and Lothar was forced to take back to Berga. Nicholas, as we can see, feels he has authority over other bishops and secular rulers and had the ability to exercise that power effectively. Following Nicholas, things take a bad turn. <laughs> There are two centuries of, in papal history known as the Seculum Obscurum, or the Dark Age, not to be confused with how people sometimes call the whole Middle Ages the Dark Ages, which 
a lot of people protest nowadays. This refers to a very specific period of time just in papal history. It is quite possibly the low point of the papacy in terms of the power and certainly of the morality of those holding the office in this period. The average reign of a pope between 850 and 1050 was just four years, and popes were routinely jailed and or murdered during this period. One candidate for the low point of the low point is the infamous Cadaver Synod, in which Pope Stephen VI, pictured here, who would himself later be strangled to death, had the corpse of his predecessor Formosus exhumed, clothed, tried, mutilated, and thrown into the Tiber River, where reportedly it came floating up again, performed a lot of miracles, which led to the people of Rome then deposing Stephen. Another good candidate for low point of the low would be the papacy of John XII. <clears throat> John XII was the illegitimate son of a Roman duke who became pope at the age of 18 and led a generally dissolute life in which he murdered and castrated his enemies, slept with so many women that his contemporaries said he turned the Vatican into a brothel, and reportedly died at the age of 27 when he had a stroke while in the act of adultery, or according to some other accounts, when the husband of one of his lovers threw him out a window. Less salacious, but no less embarrassing, was a brief period in the 11th century when three different people claimed to be the Pope, one of unfortunately two times in the history of the church that that's happened. In 1032, the Theophylax, a powerful Roman family, used bribery to ensure the election of one of their own, Benedict IX, as Pope, who was at his most in his early 20s when he took office. Like many people in his family, he is reputed to have lived a rather licentious life, and in 1044, the people of Rome, who were never crazy about how terrible the popes were in this period, revolted against him and he fled, and in his absence, Sylvester III was elected pope. But in 1045, Benedict was able to return and reclaim the throne. But later in 1045, Benedict decided that he didn't want to be pope anymore and became the first and, to our knowledge only, I really hope it's only, pope to sell the papacy to someone else, his godfather, who became Pope Gregory VI. In 1046, however, Benedict decided, actually, I think I still want to be Pope and tried to reclaim the office. So at this point, there are three different people, Benedict IX, Gregory VI, and Sylvester, who has never given up his claim on the office, that are competing for the office of the papacy. This continues until the most powerful secular ruler in Europe at that time, the German Emperor Henry III, steps in to straighten things out. In a series of synods Henry III conducted to determine who the legitimate pope was, he decides that none of them were and appointed someone else, a reform-minded bishop who took the name Clement II. Messy as all this was, it was actually a turning point in papal history. Beginning with Clement II and lasting for well over a century, almost every pope elected to the office wanted to reform the papacy and reform the church more generally. These reforms were based around limiting the power of political rulers over the affairs of the church, raising the moral standard of bishops and the clergy and the papacy, which as we've seen was not great at that time, um, and ending the common practice of clerical marriage. It is also during this period that the papacy starts to strongly resemble the way that it looks today. So for example, um, Pope Leo IX 
raises the status of cardinals from what was largely a symbolic role that they held before to the role that they have now as kind of advisors to the pope or sort of cabinet secretaries to the pope, if you will. Um, under Leo's successor, Nicholas II, these cardinals become the men who elect the new pope as they do today. Um, on a more unfortunate note, so Leo also travels all over Europe to implement his agenda, much like, say, someone like John Paul II does, and so continues the practice of the bishops of Rome having more authority outside of Rome. On a more unfortunate note, Leo is also the pope who is uh, in charge when the East and West go into permanent schism, as they are today. Um, the papacy in this period sees a lot of ups and downs, and it's seen a lot of ups and downs to that point. It would see more ups and downs in the next 1,000 years. But by this point in the 11th century, it becomes to really strongly resemble the institution that somehow still endures to this day. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Gift from our group for you, um, and I will take that for you. And we really, really appreciate you guys being here. And just so you know, I'm working on trying to see if we can get Catherine to also present to us as well. We may have to do it by Zoom, which would be kind of neat because we can record. We recorded the audio today of Sam, and so hopefully we'll, we'll hear from Catherine at some point soon before she takes back off to Indiana with Sam. <laughs> um, I have a few quick announcements. Let me just tell you real quick. Uh, oh. Do we have questions, ladies? We, <laughs> I was going to say, this may take a while. <laughs> By all means. Okay, well, so you sort of answered my question at the end when you said that Leo is the one that sort of introduced the way um, the cardinals elect the bishops, or mm -hmm. the bishop of Rome now. How was it done before that? I mean, who assumed the, the line of succession? Right, so sometimes bishops of Rome kind of gave clear intentions of when they died, who wanted to succeed them. But usually the way it happened, and this was the way that bishops were elected a lot in the ancient world, would be that the clergy in a city would elect someone to become the new pope. So it'd be as though you know, all the priests in Georgia got, or in the Atlanta diocese got to decide on who the next bishop was going to be when someone moved on. And often it was through you know elevating one of the priests in that city. It was only as you get into the 11th century that this practice where the Bishop of Rome, the, the Pope can actually come from you know, anywhere in the world. More commonly, it's usually somebody who was ordained in Rome prior to that period. Uh, so in, the, in the blue sweater right there, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that the word that we translate as bishop uh, literally means something like overseer, um, and its earliest use in the church seems to simply indicate that it was sort of like it was an overseer, somebody who was in charge of a local community. So it wouldn't have been political in the sense, say, that that person had governmental authority, but it would have been kind of a position that had leadership responsibilities coming with it. And again, all of everything has, is in an evolving stage. So 
time when they weren't necessarily ordained per se. So I'm wondering, was there a, was a spiritual component part of the process when these people were designated in this leadership role? Um, yes, I mean, questions about whether they were ordained gets a little tricky because there's also a question of when, when does the idea of being ordained mean something more than just like the community chose this as a person who represented them? And when does it become something that's like a sacrament? Um, and there's kind of a general evolution towards it getting, you know, that more kind of rarefied air. But certainly, as is laid out in the New Testament, one of the things that people are supposed to consider when they're deciding on who would be a good bishop is precisely their spiritual life. You know, what kind of life they're living. Do you see the fruits of the spirit in them? And sometimes people would also suggest, you know, that the spirit is moving amongst the people who make these decisions. We've come a long way. We've come a long way. <laughs> um, and I, did you have a question over here? Um, I was curious what that word assignment Oh, uh, yeah, so simony is a technical term for the buying and selling of religious offices. And so the court was, ma was marrying at that point? Uh, many people, yes, were married at that point. And the reason that, one of the reasons that popes want to start to move against it is that it was frequently the case that, you know, a priest would have a kid and then he would just leave the church he was at to that child. So it wouldn't stay, you know, in the hands of the church to be passed on to whoever they thought would be a good priest for that area next, it would just be passed on to that person's son who might not want to be a priest, who might not have, you know, lived a particularly good life or know a lot about uh, the religion. So one of the reasons at least to do this was that it was a way of trying to give kind of the church in Rome and the bishops more influence over who would actually be in a church. Uh, yes? Was there a Joan? Uh, there are, gosh, I know what you're talking about. Catherine, do you know more about the story of Pope Joan? Uh, I don't know that story yeah, very well. so, from what I know, um, from what I remember, the story of Pope Joan doesn't actually float around until at least, like, 500 years after it's supposed to have happened. There's no record of it, um, during the contemporary time, and it seems highly unlikely. It was a story that was seized upon by uh, Protestants um, during the Reformation, as you can guess, who had uh, very motivated reasons to spread the story. But I don't think any historian thinks that Pope Joan existed. Interesting. <laughs> any other questions? Oh, okay, let's start here. How did the Pope become great? How does the Pope become what? Oh, um, well, that's a great question, um, no pun intended. Um, so in earlier days, kind of just by acclamation, I think, so with someone like Leo or Gregory, I don't think there was ever a meeting, you know, where someone decided, resolved, this pope is going to be called the great. It just like, like many ancient rulers who didn't really have last names, people kind of apply things like Pippin the Short, or Charles the Bald to them, or Ivan the Terrible, or things like that. And so when a pope is spelled to have been like especially honored and revered, they get the title great applied to them. I think there was a more formal process in that title being applied to John Paul II, and I don't know who was in charge of that. Maybe someone at the same congregation that kind of is in charge of 
naming saints, but that, that's a good question. I don't actually know who makes that decision, Catherine. I will say, I think one of the qualifications is that there are more than two, like there's more than one person with that name, so you name one the great to distinguish yes. them from the lesser. Okay, yeah, so we have two John Pauls, so we have John Paul the Great. Yeah. John Paul II just seems like his name, so at this point. Yeah, you know. but, but the same way that, um, so, there are two St. Jameses in the Bible, and so one of them is called St. James the Greater, and one is called St. James the Lesser. Um, Thank you. Um, I think there was another question in the middle of that same table, was there? Uh, or, I, just, oh. I, I just wanted, sort of along that, is John Paul the Great a done deal now? Is it a done deal? Um, Well, we do generally like keeping things the way that they are, so I'd be surprised if that changed, but you never know. A question. Once you get your PhD, what is your career? Uh, I would hope to be a professor, maybe at like a smaller liberal arts college. Thank you. When, when do you think you'll finish? Uh, hopefully in two to three years. Anything else? All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna let um, Sam and Catherine zip out because uh, the carpool line, as you know, could block them in and they may be um, here for a while with us. <laughs> I'm gonna walk out with y'all too. Um, but let's see, I just wanted to run through some quick announcements with you guys. Next week is Ash Wednesday. We are not meeting. So good luck getting to Mass because you know how it is around here. Um, but uh, no meeting on the 2nd. And then the following weekend we have our spring concert with Kate Curran. So that should be a lot of fun. And we'll, we're, we're kind of, all this audiovisual work that's being done in the church is, um, I, don't, I can't even keep up with the domino effect of which areas are being affected and how we're going to be displaced. So just watch your plot note as to where we're actually going to meet on uh, the 9th, on March 9th, because we may be someplace other than here entirely on the campus. Then, please note that we will not have a meeting on the, 5th, uh, on, um, the 16th either. No meeting on March 16th, um, but that is the week that we're supposed to be at the um, Purification Heritage Center on Friday. So look again, check your flock notes for organizing carpools to get out there and all that good stuff. Um, then let's see, I think that gets us through at least um, there and just keep checking those flock notes. Thank you ladies, yeah, feel free to visit. I'll be back, I'm gonna walk them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna walk with y'all just in case. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think everybody, I mean, I was impressed with all the gals' questions. They had good questions. Oh, I'm still recording.